0: In the spring of 2020, COVID-19 had just begun to impact most of our lives. Some businesses had to shut down while others shifted to remote work. Restaurants had to shut their doors. Schools closed. But amid all the challenges and the uncertainty, this lockdown provided a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to look at a crucial aspect of Utah's air quality.
1: Studying air quality previously,
0: scientists had just been working with hypothesized values. We know how much one car contributes or how much one house contributes to air pollution
1: we don't really know. There's never been a time when a lot of cars were taken off the road. This is a real time when a lot of cars were taken off the road.
0: Caleb Grow is a recent graduate of Jordan High School in Sandy. That was Caleb in a 2021 presentation to Envision Utah's board of directors where he shared his analysis of how the lockdown affected air pollution. And I used two statistical models to prove statistical significance to clearly link the lockdown and the resulting pollutant levels. This clearly showed reductions in nitrogen dioxide levels and ozone levels and in the month directly after the lockdown from March 16th to April 13th there was a 40% reduction in traffic on average which led to a 28% reduction in nitrogen dioxide levels. If you've listened to our first two podcast episodes this probably isn't surprising. We drove a lot less and more than a quarter of our NOx disappeared. It was gone and our air was cleaner. But the exciting part was that this was the first time we could see in almost real time what happens to our air when we have less pollution from our cars on a massive scale. It was also a preview of what Utah's future could be. This is the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. Envision Utah's podcast about how we make sure Utah is a great place to live both now and for decades to come. In the early 2010s, more than 52,000 of you helped us create a vision for Utah in 2050. This podcast is about that vision, what we all want for the future, and what we can do to get there. And this is part three in our three-part series on Utah's air quality. Episode one was all about inversions, PM 2.5, ozone, and the health impacts of air pollution. In episode two, we looked at three of the four main sources of emissions and talked through the steps we can all take to help decrease emissions and clean the air. Today, we're looking at the biggest source of emissions, the things we drive. We'll discuss the types of cars on the road, how they impact our air, and most importantly, what steps we can take to reduce emissions from driving. First, a bit of review. In our last episode, we talked with Glade Sowards from the Division of Air Quality about the primary categories of emission sources in our state.
1: The biggest contributor to our pm 25 NOx, DOC, and SO2 are our mobile sources, our on-road mobile sources, and that's things like the cars and passenger trucks that we drive to work or to the store. That's followed pretty closely by area sources, which includes things like our homes and commercial and institutional buildings, things like furnaces, fireplaces. It's really kind of a catch-all. That's followed by uh, point sources. Those are our large industrial sources, things like mines, refineries, large manufacturing facilities. And then the smallest of our sort of four big categories is what we call non-road mobile sources. And that's things that move with an internal combustion engine but don't travel on the highway.
0: On-road mobile sources make up a little more than 40% of our total emissions today. It's the single biggest source of emissions. To reduce those emissions, there are basically four things to consider. What cars and trucks we drive, what kind of fuel we put into those cars and trucks, how much we drive, and how we drive. Let's start with what we drive. There are several classifications of cars to think about. To help sort it out, we spoke with John Miller. He's the general manager of Mark Miller Toyota and an Envision Utah board member. He explained that first, we have internal combustion engine vehicles.
2: So what has been around forever, which is just you put gas in it and you go.
0: Today, this is what most cars are. More than likely, this is what you've spent most of your life driving, and there's a good chance it's what you drive now. Second, there are hybrid vehicles.
2: Hybrids still have a gas-powered engine that are also powered by electric. The combination of the two greatly enhances both emissions and fuel economy.
0: There's a growing number of these on the market. They're a combination of gasoline-fueled engines and electric motors with a battery. Some run the electric motor with the engine to make it more efficient. Others can switch between the combustion engine and the electric motor. Then the third classification is plug-in hybrid vehicles. And that's just what it sounds like, hybrid vehicles with a battery that you can plug in.
2: Still going to have a gas-powered engine, but it has greater battery capacity, which allows it to drive a fair amount of distance on the electric-only side.
0: And finally, there are electric vehicles.
2: So an electric vehicle has no gas engine, and is 100% based on the electric battery packs.
0: Electric vehicles are considered zero-emission. Now, it would be nice if we could say that these four classifications fit perfectly on a pollution spectrum, with internal combustion on the dirty end and electric vehicles on the clean end, but unfortunately, it's not quite so cut and dry. To understand why, we need to look at smog ratings. The smog rating is a really important score the EPA gives to each car. It's basically a score for how much pollution our cars emit every mile we drive. Every car gets a score from 1 to 10. The dirtier the car, or the more emissions, the lower the number. Cleaner cars get higher numbers. Electric vehicles, for instance, have a smog rating of 10 because they have no tailpipe emissions. Even a few points on the smog rating scale can make a big difference. A car with a rating of seven, for example, is certified to pollute almost 60% less than one with a rating of five. That's the equivalent of deciding not to drive at all four days out of the week. Here's where this gets more complicated. We're accustomed to thinking about cars in terms of gas mileage or fuel efficiency, but great fuel efficiency doesn't necessarily mean a good smog rating. In other words, the things that make a car a hybrid model are not the things that lead to better smog ratings and make it cleaner. Of course, the better miles per gallon of a hybrid does mean burning less gas to go the same number of miles, and that does decrease greenhouse gas emissions, but it's not the biggest factor in emissions that contribute to Utah's PM2.5 and ozone pollution. That said, hybrid models tend to have higher smog ratings than their non-hybrid counterparts. But if the type of car doesn't necessarily determine smog rating, what does? The catalytic converter.
2: You have the muffler at the very back that is going to suppress most of the noise. And then in between that, you're going to have anywhere from one to three catalytic converters. And there's a metal within a catalytic converter that just helps it dissipate and reclaim the nitrous oxide and lower that coming out of, the, out of the vehicle.
0: Basically, as exhaust flows out of the engine, it goes through the catalytic converter, which has a honeycomb-like structure that, as the name implies, acts as a catalyst to break up more dangerous or harmful chemicals into less dangerous or harmful chemicals. Now, what you'll sometimes find is that a small, cheap, lightweight car, one that might get excellent gas mileage, can have a relatively low smog rating. One of the reasons it's cheap is probably because it doesn't have the best and most expensive parts And skimping on the catalytic converter means more pollution per mile, so a worse smog rating, like a 4 or 5. On the other hand, occasionally a larger premium vehicle with better components, but with low fuel economy, could have a better catalytic converter, produce less pollution, and have a better smog rating, something like a 7. In other words, it's hard to guess your smog rating. The only way to know for sure is to look it up. Our partners at UCare have an easy tool to do that. Go to ucare.org and click Quick Links and Tools at the top of the page and you'll see an Emission score tool where you can enter your year, make, and model and find your car's smog rating. That's ucair.org And if there is a rule of thumb about smog ratings, it's this. Older cars are generally much dirtier than newer cars. In fact, in 2018, the EPA had to change the smog rating scale because newer cars were so much cleaner than older ones. And you can't even get a smog rating on any car made prior to 2004. But still, the best way to know for sure is to look up the smog rating for your car or any car you're thinking about buying. Fortunately for everyone, this trend of cars getting cleaner doesn't show any signs of stopping. Toyota will have a hybrid model for basically all of its makes in the next few years, and all their hybrids have a smog rating of 7. Hyundai is planning on producing fully electric versions of all its cars by 2025. And other companies are also rapidly increasing their cleaner options. GM, Audi, and Volkswagen aim to eliminate gas-powered vehicles from their lineups by 2035. In fact, soon we could have more particulate pollution from the dust that comes off our brakes than we will from the car's exhaust. But we determine how fast this market shift happens, or at least how quickly it makes our air cleaner. A new car is on the road for an average of 12 years, so getting more high smog rating cars on the road and more low smog rating cars off the road as quickly as possible is important. It will do more for our air in the next decade than almost anything else. And we do this by making smog ratings one of the biggest factors when we're buying and selling our cars. We envision a future where every Utah looking for a car online filters their results by smog rating. Right now, there's not even a field to enter smog ratings when you list a car. Or imagine entering a dealership where salespeople point you to the cars with the higher smog ratings. Or what if we humble bragged about our smog ratings the way we do about miles per gallon? Next time you buy a car, ask about the smog rating. If the seller doesn't know, you can visit UCare's website to look it up yourself. Next time you're selling a car, advertise its smog rating. Help spread the word that smog ratings make a big difference in Utah's air.
1: So someone gets a Tesla and the criticism is, well, you're just moving your exhaust pipe to Emory County where a coal-fired power plant is or something like that.
0: That's Glade Sowers from the Division of Air Quality again. He's talking about upstream emissions. It's the idea that electric cars or electric lawnmowers still need their energy from somewhere. So if we're not burning fuel on the spot, aren't we just burning coal to make electricity somewhere upstream? And is that really better? There are a few key points to answer that question. Number one, electricity is still cleaner per mile driven than gasoline, even if the electricity was produced by coal. So yes, there will be upstream emissions to power your LEAF or Tesla or electric lawnmower, but it's still cleaner for everyone than using gasoline. Number two, electric options help change our individual emissions at the local level and move those emissions to an airshed that might not have the same inversion or ozone problems as, for example, the valleys along the Wasatch Front. And number three, generating electricity is becoming cleaner thanks to changes in the market and state and federal policies and regulations. In Utah specifically, less and less of our power is coming from coal and more and more is coming from natural gas, solar, and wind.
1: So in a nutshell, power generation is slated to get a lot cleaner. If you look at Pacific or Rocky Mountain Power's latest integrated resource plan, they're showing a massive push towards wind, solar and storage, things like battery storage or other storage technologies, a little bit of natural gas and and again, mostly uh, coal phases out.
0: So is an electric vehicle truly zero emission? Maybe, depending on where you get your electricity. But regardless, upgrading to an electric car is the biggest thing any of us could do to cut our on-road mobile emissions. But even if you're not quite ready to go electric or not in the car market at all, there are still ways you can make a difference. We all can clean the air simply by putting the right kind of fuel in our cars. Back in 2013, Governor Herbert asked Envision Utah to facilitate a group called the Clean Air Action Team and make specific recommendations for improving air quality in Utah. One of the big recommendations was to bring cleaner fuel to Utah. This cleaner fuel is called Tier 3 fuel and... After the Clean Air Action Team's recommendations, the governor and other leaders started working with local refineries to get it here. As of this year, most of the major refineries in Utah are producing it. Tier 3 refers to a set of federal EPA standards that require petroleum refiners to reduce the sulfur content of gasoline. Remember that catalytic converter? Well, it works a lot better when there's less sulfur in the fuel. So less sulfur means fewer emissions overall. In newer cars, Tier 3 gas combined with cleaner engines can reduce harmful emissions up to 80%. But even in an older car, it can reduce emissions by as much as 14%. That's one-seventh of your emissions gone just from the gas you buy. If you want to see where to buy Tier 3 fuel, you can go to tier3gas.org. Generally, though, some of the big names you recognize like Sinclair, Chevron, Texaco, Shell, Exxon, and Speedway will have it, in addition to some other sellers. Now that we've talked about what we drive and what gas we use, we need to consider how much we drive. This is where some of the advice we've heard before comes in. Carpool if you can, use public transportation more often, telecommute, walk or bike if you're just going a short distance, and try to consolidate your online orders into as few deliveries as possible. These things are individual decisions, but some of driving less also comes down to community decision-making. For better or worse, we've spent most of the last century designing our communities to be really car-friendly which often isn't great for walking or biking. For example, have you ever driven from one part of a parking lot to another part of the same lot just to go to a different store? That's what we mean. Over time, though, we can change that and make some of our destinations a little more walkable and a little more bikeable, or just make our driving trips shorter. Here are a few key ways to do that. First, we can put homes and businesses closer together. That can mean adding housing to retail or office areas. Second, we can build more public transportation, bike lanes, sidewalks, and walking trails. That will make it safer and more convenient to go somewhere without a car. Third, we can build more connected street networks. That's the kind of grid system that Brigham Young built. It turns out that having more connected roads and fewer dead-end streets and cul-de-sacs disperses traffic, shortens driving distances, and makes it a lot safer and more convenient to walk or bike. Fourth, we can design places to be more walkable. Instead of huge parking lots in front of buildings, for example, we can put the building entrance on the sidewalk. Finally, how we drive has a big impact on emissions too. For example, idling is really inefficient. So if you're parked and not going anywhere in the next 10 seconds, you should turn your car off. There was a time when it was important to warm your engine up for a few minutes before driving in the winter, but that was 30 years ago. Modern engines don't need to be warmed up before you drive them. They don't use more fuel to start than they use idling, and your heater will warm up much faster your first few minutes of driving than sitting in a driveway. Also, we need to introduce you to something called the cold start. Most of your car's pollution happens in the first few minutes after you start it. Your catalytic converter doesn't work as well when it's cold, but after a few minutes of warming up, it does its job of removing pollution much more effectively. The important part is, after you've been driving, your catalytic converter will stay warm for as much as an hour or more. So, if you can combine your errands or do one after another without your car sitting parked for a few hours in between... You'll reduce those cold starts and put less pollution into the air. This also means we should maybe think twice about the little trips we make like driving to the track stop or moving the car from the driveway to the street. One last thing about how we drive. If you have a diesel truck and you've added a power chip, please turn it off when you're driving around town. Your truck has a very carefully calibrated emissions control system and that power chip really throws it off. That's why you see a black cloud come out of your tailpipe when you push on the gas. Not only is that bad for our air, but it's also illegal. We've covered a lot today, so let's recap. On-road mobile emissions are the biggest source of pollution today and will be throughout the next decade. But we can control how quickly we reduce these emissions. First, what we drive matters. The higher the smog rating, the cleaner the car. Second, the fuel we use can also make a big difference. Use Tier 3 gas whenever you can. Third, how much we drive matters. Our individual decisions to reduce driving can make a big difference, and in the long run, we can also shape our communities to make it easier to drive less. Finally, how we drive matters. When we avoid idling and reduce cold starts, we also reduce our emissions. When we started writing this podcast, we thought we would make one 20-minute episode titled something like, Everything Utah Should Know About Air Quality. But now that we just wrapped up our third episode on this topic, we hope you know at least some of everything there is to know about our air. Our air quality affects our state's beauty. It affects our economy. It affects our health and so much more. And understanding the sources of pollution and how to reduce pollution is complicated. But cleaner air is not only attainable. It's our most likely future. It's just up to us to determine how much cleaner the air gets and how quickly it gets there. If you want to understand more about Utah's air and specific steps you can take to reduce emissions, visit yourairyourutah.org. Thank you for listening to the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. You can catch all three episodes in our air quality series, as well as all future episodes, on our website, envisionutah.org, or on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Work on our next episode is already underway. We're looking at another pressing topic on many of our minds, water. Special thanks to Caleb Groh, John Miller, and Glade Sowards who helped with this episode. This podcast is an Envision Utah production made possible by Envision Utah's supporters and the many, many Utahns who have worked with us on air quality issues over more than two decades. This episode was written and produced by Shayla Adams, Nate Brown, Ari Bruning, and me, Jason Brown. Be sure to share this with your friends and family, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and join us next time as we dive into the future of water.